Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. The use of the complement inhibitor eculizumab as part of a multimodal treatment for antibody-mediated rejection in solid organ transplant patients is a relatively new phenomenon. Therapeutic drug monitoring strategies for eculizumab have not been fully adopted in transplant due to a lack of understanding of their availability and proper use. To teach us more about this exciting breakthrough, we have Dr. Megan Golly joining our podcast to provide a comprehensive overview of the use of therapeutic drug monitoring in eculizumab treatment, as well as recommendations for its use in the treatment of antibody-mediated rejection in solid organ transplant patients. Eculizumab is a monoclonal antibody used in many complement-mediated disease states that, fun fact, was once the most expensive drug in the world. My objectives are listed there on the slide. Today, we're going to review a little bit of the background of eculizumab, including its mechanism of action and role in antibody-mediated rejection in solid organ transplant. We're also going to discuss laboratory values and laboratory testing methods available for therapeutic drug monitoring with eculizumab, and then describe their role in our optimization of eculizumab treatment. So starting off with a little bit of background, Antibody-mediated rejection, or AMR, is a type of rejection experienced by solid organ transplant patients that can be further broken down into acute and chronic. Acute involves direct immune-mediated damage to the graft endothelial tissue, whereas chronic is a repetitive pattern of inflammatory changes, leading to remodeling of that graft tissue over time. The incidence of AMR varies by organ, and they are listed there below. Though AMR is a decently rare disease state, it is associated with a large morbidity and mortality, and therefore urgency when treating this disease state is definitely warranted. In terms of the pathophysiology of AMR, it begins with HLA or human leukocyte antigen. HLA is the immune system's way of differentiating self from non-self. So when the recipient of a transplant's immune system recognizes that donor's HLA as foreign, it elicits an immune response resulting in T-cell activation, B-cell activation, and subsequent antibody formation against that donor's HLA. These antibodies formed against the donor HLA are known as donor-specific antibodies, or DSAs. Once released into the circulation, DSAs will result in complement activation and subsequent damage to the vascular endothelium of that graft tissue. Let's review the complement cascade in a little more detail. The complement cascade is a series of serum protein reactions resulting in the formation of the membrane attack complex that will lead to uh, vascular damage. There are three possible ways to invoke the complement cascade. The classical pathway, which starts as a response of the presence of serum antibodies. The lectin pathway, which starts as a response of mannose-containing sugars on bacterial pathogens and the alternative pathway that starts as a response to auto-activation of the complement cascade. All three of these will converge on C5 convertase, and C5 convertase will convert C5 into C5A and C5B, 
with C5B then going on to join C6, 7, 8, and 9 to form C5B through 9 or the membrane attack complex. Once formed, the membrane attack complex will lead to opsonization and phagocytosis, direct cell lysis, and the promotion of pro-inflammatory cytokines that will cause damage to the vascular endothelium of the graft via cytotoxic pore formation, inflammation, and direct vascular injury. The treatment of antibody-mediated rejection is often multimodal and can include components such as rituximab, plasma exchange or PLEX, intravenous immunoglobulin or IVIG, the optimization of maintenance immunosuppressive agents, and then proteasome inhibitors or ecolizumab. It's important to note that while all, all of these components can be a part of an antibody-mediated rejection treatment protocol, they are, not they are not all used for every organ and at every center. Here at Mayo Clinic, we do have experience using ecolizumab and success with its use, and that's what drives its use in our protocols here. Echolizumab is a humanized monoclonal antibody against C5, with one echolizumab molecule being able to bind up to two C5. It also binds C5B through 9, or the membrane attack complex, with lower affinity. It is used in many complement-mediated disease states, such as the ones listed on the slide there. And I will note that the two at the bottom, the italicized ones, are off-label uses of echolizumab, with the remaining four being FDA-approved. In terms of echolizumab's mechanism in the complement pathway, it will stop C5 and then prevent the downstream formation of the membrane attack complex so that the membrane attack complex cannot cause damage to that vascular endothelium of the graft tissue. In terms of the pharmacokinetics of echolizumab, it does have a very long and varied half-life between 11 and 17 days with a clearance ranging from 16 to 273 milliliters per hour. And as you can see here, there is a very large intrapatient variability with echolizumab pharmacokinetics. One factor contributing to the intrapatient variability is the metabolism of echolizumab. Free echolizumab is degraded by lysosomes in the serum. However, free echolizumab also exists in equilibrium with its bound form, which is bound by FCRN. And this is what leads to its long half-life and variability between patients. Additional considerations for dosing of echolizumab, IVIG will bind the FCRN receptor as well, so echolizumab should be given prior to IVIG if at all possible. Plasma exchange will remove echolizumab, so supplemental dosing after PLEX is definitely warranted, and fresh frozen plasma and other blood products do contain complement proteins, so supplemental dosing of echolizumab before their administration is also recommended. There are additional considerations to think about with echolizumab treatment, including the infection risk and the cost. Due to the inhibition of the complement cascade, the risk of developing meningitis increases 2,000-fold in patients on echolizumab compared to the general population. And this risk is increased at supertherapeutic concentrations. Additionally, as I alluded to in the beginning of the presentation, this is a very high-cost medication with one 300-milligram vial costing almost $7,000. And I will add that that is the average wholesale price and does not indicate to the price, the price to the institution or the cost to the patient, which is often larger and hard to predict.
So let's look at egalizumab and is in an example treatment protocol for AMR. As I alluded to earlier, AMR treatment protocols will vary by center and also by organ. So this is an example treatment protocol of kidney transplant early active AMR. We'll start with a 1200 milligram initial dose and then dose it at 900 milligrams weekly thereafter with a duration determined by treatment success. And this can also include the use of IVIG and Plex, which as we've spoken about can alter the pharmacokinetics of ecolizumab. So let's look at this from a pharmacoeconomic standpoint. That 1200 milligram initial dose will cost upwards of $26,000 with each additional 900 milligram dose costing $20,000. If we assume a treatment duration of four total doses, that's almost $90,000 for one treatment course for one patient. And again, I'll reiterate that that is the AWP and not the cost to the patient. So that brings us to our first question. I see we already have one response. Thank you so much. Which of the following is a major uh, risk factor for treatment with ecolizumab? So we have A, high cost, B, meningitis risk, C, hepatotoxicity, or D, nephrotoxicity. And I'll give everybody a second to answer using the Poll Everywhere software. Okay, yes, yeah, so I'm seeing a lot of B, meningitis risk, which is the correct answer. So the high cost associated with ecolizumab is not necessarily a risk factor because we know that ecolizumab is going to have a high cost associated with it. It is, the major risk factor is meningitis risk, as we know, um, that's why the REMS program is associated with it to ensure for prophylaxis of ecolizumab. Hepatotoxicity has been associated with ecolizumab treatment in the literature, but it's not as big of a risk factor as the meningitis risk. And then nephrotoxicity has not been significantly reported in the literature. So that brings us to our desire for ecolizumab drug concentration monitoring or ecolizumab therapeutic drug monitoring. The first reason why we would want to initiate some type of monitoring is treatment validation. We wanna make sure that our treatment is therapeutic and that we're adequately inhibiting the formation of the membrane attack complex, especially in the setting of IVIG, plasma exchange, and the transfusion of blood products, which can occur with our transplant patients being treated for AMR. The next factor is the infection risk, especially at super therapeutic dosing. So we wanna make sure we're implementing some monitoring. And then of course, cost savings to the patient. Um, if we can save the patient, any amount of cost because this is a high cost medication. So the first type of therapeutic drug monitoring associated with ecolizumab is the ecolizumab trough concentration. The trough concentration is a serum specimen with a turnaround time of about three days and it's available to be run here at Mayo Clinic Rochester on Wednesdays. The goal is above 100 micrograms per milliliter. And I will add a caveat that different goals do exist in the literature and that over 100 is a relatively conservative dosing strategy. So let's look at some data using ecolizumab trough concentrations in complement-mediated disease states. So the first study was an ex vivo study of 1,000 virtual patients with paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinemia, or PNH. These simulated patients were started on a dose of 900 milligrams every two weeks, and then had their dosing interval changed based on the simulated trough concentration per the chart below. In terms of the results of this study, they did see an 11% theoretical cost savings. However, I will add that this was a virtual study based on, or based on population kinetics, and they did not look at efficacy outpoints, only a cost savings ratio. 
The next study was a retrospective pharmacokinetic study of nine patients, seven with atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome, or AHUS, and two with PNH. Trough concentrations were taken from these patients in the maintenance phase of their treatment, and this pharmacokinetic study did find an inverse correlation between echolizumab trough concentration and patient weight, as you can see there. I will point out the two major differences between patients three and four. Patients three and four were both AHUS patients, and as you can see, they had a very wide distribution of their echolizumab trough concentrations, with patient three being very super therapeutic at 733, and patient four being sub-therapeutic at only 55. An additional study of, it was a prospective study of echolizumab treatment protocol in 15 patients with AHUS who were on maintenance therapy with echolizumab. Based on a pharmacokinetic model, the suspected trough was calculated, and patients who had a suspected trough of over 100 had their interval increased by one week, and then their actual echolizumab trough concentrations were measured. 15, 10 out of 15 or 67% of these patients did have therapeutic echolizumab trough concentrations despite the dosing interval increase. So let's look at all of these data together. So the first study was a simulated study showing us a cost-benefit with echolizumab trough-based dosing. The second study did show us wide intrapatient variability and an echolizumab trough that was inversely correlated to patient weight. And from the last one, we saw that fewer echolizumab total doses were given without a significant compromise in patient efficacy using an echolizumab trough-based dosing regimen. The next type of therapeutic drug monitoring we're going to discuss is complement testing assay or complement assay testing. Complement assay testing is a measurement of how well echolizumab is suppressing the complement system. And the first group of tests we're going to talk about are the C5 function, CH50, and AH50. The C5 function is a hemolytic activity assay indicative of the function of C5 alone. CH50 is, the, is a hemolytic activity assay indicative of the function of the classical pathway of the complement system. And AH50 is an ELISA test indicative of the, of the function of just the alternative pathway. There are the reference ranges and treatment target goals here. Uh, it is important to note that different labs can report the CH50, C5 function, and AH50 as different metrics, but these are the units we use here at Mayo Clinic Rochester. And in terms of ordering, these are all serum tests with a turnaround time of one to two days, and they're available most days of the week. In terms of their data for use, we do have one prospective pharmacokinetic study where serum samples from patients with a normal CH50 at baseline were taken, and then subsequently spiked with eculizumab at different concentrations, and then these complement assays were obtained. In terms of the results, as we can see, all three of these complement assays were inhibited at an echolizumab trough concentration of 100 micrograms per milliliter, and that was found to be significant. So from this, we can gather all three complement assays are inhibited at an echolizumab trough concentration of above 100, and complement assays are an important part of the clinical picture in assessing echolizumab efficacy. The last test we're going to talk about today is the concentration of C5B through 9, or the membrane attack complex. This is an immunoassay of C5B through 9, or MAC, concentration with a reference range of above 250 nanograms per milliliter in patients who are experiencing a complement-mediated disease state. 
In terms of ordering this test here, this is a citrate plasma sample, and the turnaround time can be up to 12 days. In terms of the times it's run, it's run about once a week when they have 10 samples to be able to uh, run. In terms of this data for use, we do have a pharmacokinetic prospective study looking at 20 allogeneic stem cell transplant recipients with transplant-associated thrombotic microangiopathy, or TATMA. And these samples were compared to 74 randomized allogeneic stem cell transplants patients without TATMA. And it did see an increase in both CH50 and C5B through 9 concentrations that was found to be significant. And these data were repeated in two additional pharmacokinetic studies. So we can see that C5B through 9 was significantly elevated in the complement-mediated disease state of TATMA. An additional study was a prospective study of an echolizumab treatment-based protocol. This was a single-center prospective study of 64 pediatric allogeneic stem cell transplant recipients with TATMA who were treated with echolizumab according to the following protocol. They started with weight-based dosing, and then the interval was determined by the concentration of MAC. So patients with high C5B through 9 were dosed every 72 hours, while patients with low C5B through 9 were dosed weekly. And that was until the stabilization of C5B through 9, and then all patients were dosed weekly. This was continued until the trough concentration was above 100. The C5B through 9 concentration was below 244, and the CH50 was below 10%. And then that was sustained for four consecutive doses. Maintenance dosing was then continued until TATMA was deemed inactive by the treating physician. So looking at the results using this treatment protocol, overall survival at echolizumab was 66% at one year, and this was non-statistically compared to a previously reported cohort of about 17% survival. They also looked at patients who had high MAC at the beginning of treatment versus patients who had low MAC at the beginning of treatment. Patients with high MAC had required more echolizumab dosing and did have a significantly lower survival rate at one year compared to their low MAC counterparts. So looking at complement assay testing as a whole, it is useful for determining if echolizumab is adequately inhibiting the complement system, and it should be used in conjunction with both echolizumab trough and the patient's clinical picture in order to make a decision about echolizumab dosing. That brings us to our next knowledge check. So true or false, the C5 function test is an ELISA test indicative of the function of the alternative pathway. We have A for true or B for false, and I'll give everybody a second to answer. So yes, I am seeing a majority of B, which is false. So the C5 function test is a hemolytic assay analysis of the C5 function alone, whereas an ELISA test indicative of the function of the alternative pathway is the AH50 test. So that leads us to additional considerations, including the timing of monitoring. So if we're looking at a patient with an example protocol, they would have received a loading dose of echolizumab, IVIG, and then also PLEX with supplemental echolizumab dosing associated with it, and then started on their weekly maintenance dosing. Here is where I would want to obtain complement assays and an echolizumab trough. With the caveat that I want to make sure my therapeutic drug monitoring tests are taken at least one week after PLEX to maintain the integrity of the assays. So let's put this all together. This is an example patient case of AL, who is a 25-year-old heart transplant patient 
experiencing antibody-mediated rejection. Despite receiving nine weekly doses of ecolizumab, he has not clinically improved. So he's currently on 900 milligrams weekly. And then we're going to obtain our therapeutic drug monitoring. And these are the results we get back. Our ecolizumab trough is 64 micrograms per milliliter. Our C5 function is 15. Our CH50 is 30. And our AH50 is 21%. And I will put the treatment targets up there as well. And I'll give everybody a second to look those over. So that leads us to our final knowledge check. So the team is asking you, we can extend AL's ecolizumab dosing interval to every two weeks. Based on the therapeutic drug monitoring you have received, what is your response? So A, based on the ecolizumab trough, changing to every 900 milligrams every two weeks is warranted. B, based on the complement assays, extending that dosing interval to every two weeks is warranted. C, changing to 900 milligrams every two weeks is not warranted at this time. Or D, ecolizumab is no longer useful or no longer appropriate in this patient. So I'll give everybody a second to answer. Okay, so I'm seeing a majority of, of people did choose C, and that is uh, what I would assess as well. So I agree with everyone. So based on the ecolizumab trough, changing to 900 milligrams every two weeks is warranted is not the correct answer because the ecolizumab trough did not indicate a therapeutic ecolizumab level. The complement assays also do not indicate proper inhibition of the complement system. So that would make C the correct answer. Changing to 900 milligrams every two weeks is not warranted at this time. And then D, ecolizumab is still indicated for this patient as he is still experiencing AMR. So in terms of future directions for ecolizumab therapeutic drug monitoring, there are two studies in the works right now. This first is the eSpace ECU trial. This is a double-blind randomized control trial of patients with AHUS, and they will be randomized to receive either traditional ecolizumab dosing or dosing based on ecolizumab trough levels. And they're looking at uh, their primary endpoint is an incremental cost utility ratio. The second is a prospective pharmacokinetic study or the PREPARE study. It's an observational pharmacokinetic study of patients with PNH, and they are looking to find ecolizumab peak concentrations as well as volume of distribution as their co-primary endpoints. Unfortunately, there are no trials of ecolizumab therapeutic drug monitoring in solid organ transplant patients upcoming. And another future direction is the development of ravelizumab. Ravelizumab is a longer-acting C5 monoclonal antibody with a four-amino acid change from its parent drug, ecolizumab. This increases its affinity for the FCRN receptor and therefore increases its half-life. The complement assays that we've discussed in the presentation today could be beneficial for the monitoring of ravelizumab, just like they're beneficial for the monitoring of ecolizumab. In conclusion, there is evidence to support therapeutic drug monitoring for ecolizumab in patients with other complement-mediated disease states, therapeutic drug monitoring via ecolizumab trough measurement and complement assays can both validate our treatment dosing adequacy and support the development of patient-specific dosing. And then the combination of these drug modalities is helpful in determining adequate blockade without overdosing our ecolizumab. Patients who would benefit from therapeutic drug monitoring with ecolizumab include patients whose AMR is not clinically improving, patients who are the recipient of multiple blood products and or IVIG and Plex, patients whose weight falls out of the normal distribution, which could alter the pharmacokinetic parameters of ecolizumab, and patients who have cost-related barriers in affording the drug. 
My recommendations, I would recommend an echolizumab trough concentration in these patients to help determine uh, and assess the dosing interval. I would recommend complement assays such as C5 function, CH50, and AH50 for determining, determining the extent of complement inhibition with echolizumab. And I believe it's reasonable to get an SC5 B through nine level prior to starting treatment to determine the level of aggression to treat these patients with. And that's based on the study that showed decreased survival with patients who had high C5 B through nine levels prior to treatment. I will add my caveat that therapeutic drug monitoring should never be used alone to make a clinical decision in terms of our echolizumab dosing and should always be used in conjunction with the entire clinical picture for the patient. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.